Hello, good evening, and welcome. I'm Simon Bestwick. And I'm Gemma Files, and this is, of course, No Darkness, But Ours. Welcome to the second part of this special edition of No Darkness, But Ours, in which we interview Hayley Piper, author of The Worm and His Kings, The Possession of Natalie Glasgow, and No Gods for Drowning, among many other titles, about horror, queerness, and her ongoing mission to, in her own words, make horror gay as fuck. I, I definitely, I definitely find that uh, when you're a working writer, um, then there's that sort of again the back and forth between the stuff that you build from the bottom up and at your own speed and the stuff that almost metastasizes, you know, because somebody is giving you a deadline from the outside. Somebody's saying, right. "Oh, what if you wrote this?" and you're like. <laughs> What if I wrote this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> humor, you know, suddenly. It's amazing. It's amazing what, a, what a good stimulus, uh, you know, a sort of cash advance can. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> you, you get advances? <laughs> so the first, the first ever novel, um, once they, you have to, they, they commissioned off the basis of a sample chapter and, and an outline, chapter breakdown. So once right. they accepted that, they, they sent, uh, you, know, you you got like half, I think half in advance, and then um, uh, the rest on the rest on completion. Uh, I, I always liked to remind the editor because he it was it was a zombie novel, and he rang him and said, "So do you like to write a, a zombie novel for me?" Then and I sort of to be sarcastic, well, actually, I'm kind of moving more into sort of bodice ripping uh, romance now. Um, <laughs> hey, that's an idea, Pride and Prejudice with zombies, yeah. and I actually came up with an idea that was. That was basically set in, you know, had Mr. Darcy as a secret agent using French zombies at the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> and then they get they turned them loose after the war to try and stop all the civil unrest in Britain after the Napoleonic Wars. And it all goes, all goes a bit Pete Tong. And I pitched that to him and I said, no, I, th I, th I, th I think um, I think we'll just stick with what we've got at the moment. But I do like to remind him he was the the editor who turned down Pride and Prejudice with zombies. <laughs> uh, if not the... Yes. Not and, so, yeah. and a considerably more interesting version as opposed to well, <laughs> we're literally going to rewrite Pride and Prejudice with zombies. <laughs> just just insert zombies. I was I was giving it a call it Pride and Extreme Prejudice, you know, it was the <laughs> 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 <That's funny. laughs> Okay. So but yeah, that kind of thing. There's the necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention and all that. Um, um, so yeah, the, the, there is something to be said for that. But you do, yeah, absolutely have to remember why why we started doing this to begin with. Um, God knows it wasn't for the money. Uh, <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, that's that's we that's we come back to the masturbatory element. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like, are you, are you just trying to make yourself happy? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> Myself happy and hopefully other people happy. Um, yeah. I think there's like a necessity because like, because again, it, it comes down to like, well, you're kind of arrogant. It's like, yeah. I mean, why is that looked at as a problem, though, mm. when you are creating art? Like, again, it's it's that it's that expectation of shame. Like, why are you trying to make people feel things? Why are you feeling things? It's like, that's only a problem if you look at everyone and everything as this big machine. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. just like, I think I think a lot of art is just, yeah, you don't, you do need to be harsh. Critic. I think it comes down to just flexible shamelessness. Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, it's a, yeah, which, okay, so 
the last thing that we were talking about was um was lesbian horror we had moved through from general queer horror and, and gay male horror to you know lesbian horror I, w- I was thinking about how inextricable to some degree um the the body is from queer horror and uh how that often when you when you try to make a distinction between one type of queer horror and another type of queer horror you do find yourself getting into these weird metaphors which are very much like you know like a dick versus a vagina that <laughs> sort of like you know it's like ah it's where, where you're sucking stuff inside of yourself and then undermining it somehow, you're changing it, you spit it out in a different way, you know, and you're just like, um, but I was thinking about um, Lovecraftiana and the way that, um, the way that queerness has penetrated Lovecraftiana and is sort of changing, changing it in an almost topping from below kind of way. You know, uh, in much the same way that uh, people of color are seizing onto the tropes of Lovecraftiana and trying to and bending them um, and, you know, and going like, yeah, what if Lovecraft, but not racist? You know, yes. <laughs> what if Lovecraft, but not afraid of vaginas or squid, you know, <laughs> and or squid with vaginas. Why not? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, what What do you think? the What do you think the. Um, the appeal is with Lovecraft, with Lovecraft, Lovecraftian um, tropes, shall we well, say? Well, I think, um, I mean, some of it is just because cosmic horror, I think, is is fun to dabble in, um, yeah. especially if you're someone who likes some wonder and awe in your horror. Yes. Um, but also, I think there's a kind of a um, not exactly like trying to subvert Lovecraft necessarily, but it is it is almost necessary to do so in responding because Lovecraft um, Lovecraft presents the presents horror as this in in a lot of stories. I don't want to say that Lovecraft only does one thing, but in a lot of stories presents it as if there there is society and it is this good thing and it is the way things should be and people should be proud of it. And then zooming out to show it as this completely unimportant, irrelevant thing that can be easily messed up and broken by the uncaring universe and all the horrible things that exist in it. Yes. And I think that the appeal for um, authors from marginalized groups is that we don't see society as this shining beacon in a universe of darkness or something. It's that 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 darkness can be a comforting place because society has been cruel with its light. It has been uh, is burned. It has cut. It has stamped down. Is crushed. Yeah. And so when you have this possibility that um, everything outside of that is just chaos, chaos sounds nice. Chaos sounds yeah. comforting. Yes. Um, I, I think, like, you know, that if you have, I, I, I think it's in The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, where there's a part um, after the main character suffers a, a tragedy I don't want to spoil, yeah. but um, he thinks about the, the terror that certain men have of an uncaring universe, and he says he wishes the universe didn't care. Like, that would be, that would be relief compared to the cruelty. Yes, the the um, deliberate cruelty, 
right. yeah. of of a of a universe that you inhabit from birth on, where people seem to care very much about hurting you for right. being who you are. Yes. And yeah, there's that there's that there's that subtext. I mean, you know, during the during the 80s, uh, the horror that we sort of grew up with. Um, uh, I hesitate to say the Kingian horror model, but the Kingian horror model, because, you know, he's not always like that. He's been around long enough that he's really tried to change that. <laughs> that sort of like he's experimented yeah i want to exactly. say yeah but that i that idea that you know there's you know things are good and then something from the outside comes in and tries to change the good things and you know and but uh, after struggle things get better again <laughs> you know as as the thing from the outside is is rejected to some degree but if you think of yourself as the thing from the outside that has to yeah. be rejected you know it's, right. it's like it's like when people talk about horror as being an inherently othering genre mm -hmm. you know but i agree the other the monstrous supposedly you know um is absolutely attractive and i think if if you love horror you know nine times out of ten you're attracted to it because you have an affinity for the monstrous, an affinity yeah. for, you know, to say, uh, and, and, and a real feeling that you want to say, you know, yes, I am not like you, maybe, you know, but that's not awful. It is not awful to be the way I am. And maybe, yeah. maybe you are like me as too, too, you know, maybe we're all the other. Have you thought yeah. about that? <laughs> and I, yeah. I do think I do think I mean you and you can tell different kinds of stories that way where you can yeah. have traditionally characters from traditionally othered backgrounds fighting a monster or you can have something where the other is the monster or um you know there's lots of ways to explore it um because on another on another ground you can have an outside thing coming in and it is a problem like like a, in a colonization type of um, scenario, Absolutely. like there's yeah. the context is everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I do agree with you. Largely, we do feel like um, I think Frankenstein's monster is the classic example yeah. of where we we do feel for what is supposed to be the monster. Although I would even argue that that's not even the case in the original text. That's something that um, larger society kind of reinterpreted it into that this is the monster and it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's certain it certainly seems to me that Mary Shelley was very much interested in the idea that no, perhaps the true monster is a guy who looks at his child and goes, "Ah, you're so ugly. I, right. I didn't I didn't realize that until you were moving around." <laughs> right. I, I assembled you out of you know out of out of out of, out of corpses, you know, yeah. stitched them crudely well. together, and you know, oh, you don't. And it's like your fault. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's yeah, um, it's it's almost like that inherent thing that you know we don't want to think about in terms of parenting, which is where one day you look at your child and they're an individual. And you don't yeah. understand what's going on inside them necessarily. They're an, they're another human being thinking their own thoughts. And on some level, you're like, not just oh, that's really cool. You you're like, 
oh, (laughs) (laughs) right, you're a whole other person. (laughs) Why did I do that? Why did I make a whole other person who now scream at me and go, no? (laughs) 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 Or just come out with something and you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And um, yes. <laughs> Again, yeah, Gemma, do a, make make a statement. Simon, ask a question. <laughs> okay, well, I wanted to I wanted to ask actually next about the, the worm and his kings because this was the first thing of yours I read and was absolutely blown away by. Frankly, um, I mean, it's a really uh, incredibly rich and original piece, and there's I mean, it's got it. There's the setting in the sort of subterranean homeless communities of New York. There's there's the love story or even the love quest that's kind of driving Monique into the unknown in pursuit um, of her of her partner. And, and then there's the Lovecraftian cosmic horror element, the cult and what what lies beyond that. And any one of those elements would have made a fascinating and compelling story by itself. But together they create this, you know, something which is even more extraordinary. So, I mean, what was the starting point of all that? Because there were so many or, or, or any one of those aspects would, you know, be the starting point, could be the starting point of a wonderful story. But you, um, what, 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 what's, where did it start, and how did it kind of these different elements kind of synthesize together? Um, it started with the lore. Funny enough, I I had these ideas about this um, kind of millions year spanning uh, situation that was really just beyond humans. Um, Right. So I had that background and I, I had to try, I wasn't sure how to approach it though, because that's not really something that you can easily get humans to end up interacting with um, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it did take a couple tries. I tried writing it as a short story, but um, the character with that just felt forced. It wasn't working. Um, and I kind of set it aside for a while. And then um, I think I was working on a different story a short, a different short story and something about the character in that inspired Monique and then kind of a lot of the rest of it started to unfold. Um, and I honestly, I still to this day cannot remember where Donna came from. I cannot, like she just always existed for some reason, but I just cannot remember where that started with her. But yeah, so once I figured out Monique, that's kind of where everything else began to unfold. It's like, okay, so she would approach it like this because of this, and then this would happen. Yeah. And it, it took a few tries to even get that part right. Cause I, I knew like the second half of that book was like solid. I knew exactly what was gonna happen. Even just getting her to that halfway point, though, was just, it took a few tries of like, okay, how am I getting her here? Why is she, how is she getting here? I knew why she was doing all this stuff. It was always for Donna, but like, you know, what steps of this to encounter? Because I I really didn't want to overwhelm the reader, but Mm -hmm. I also wanted them to be encountering something new each chapter, to be learning or learning something new, either about the worm stuff or about Monique each chapter. Um, Yeah. So it's just kind of a, and so, the reader, Monique's descent ends up having to be the reader's descent. So that was like, that part was very purposeful from the beginning. Um, and it was just a matter of trying to figure that stuff out. But yeah, it started with the lore. That was the very first thing. Yeah. Um, that quest uh, into the underworld in pursuit of the person you love. I mean, that's pure Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. And it's, it's catabasis. 
you know, let's <laughs> let's go to the underworld to to retrieve the person who is lost. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, not, to, not to have been a particularly good idea after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny because I've seen people be like, well, that was dumb. And I'm just like, okay, I'm sorry you don't love anybody enough to go chase a yes! monster into the sewers yeah, for them. Exactly. Again, the emotion. Again, right, the, right, know, exactly. It's it's not an intellectual decision. It is an emotional decision to pursue somebody, even if it's at risk to yourself. Yes. And and, and in this case, in in if you want to interpret it a certain way, at risk to your soul. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And and I think that's an integral thread of horror. That right. you know, when, whenever people are like, "Well, that's dumb," you know, it's like I would never make that decision. I'm like, "What? Really?" Really? Would you would you really never make that decision? I mean, people have problems, for example, with um, Barbarian, uh, the recent film. Um, yeah, but a yeah, lot seen. of a lot of it rang very true to me in the initial stages because yeah, I think too. We've, we've all been in situations where it's like, why should I care about another human being? <laughs> or and, but shouldn't I care about another human being because right. they're another yeah. human being, you know, uh, ab above and beyond the whole thing of will politeness get me killed? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> will, you know, will sort of making that that leap of, oh, I'll bet you're not a serial killer, even though <laughs> you look like Pennywise the Clown. You literally look like Pennywise the Clown. <laughs> Maybe this actually is just a coincidence. Maybe this actually is just something weird that happened. <laughs> you know? yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. before you know it, you're literally going down into the darkness. Right. And going, hi, hello, <sighs> hello. A lot, a lot of people have that thing where they're, you know, if you're from a middle class background, there's often that thing where the worst thing you could do is to make a scene. Yeah. Um, so rather yeah. than do that, there's, there's there's also I think maybe as well if you come from a very comfortable and privileged background, there's the element of the the just world fallacy where mm. you know things like that don't happen to me. You know, they, they only they things have to be people who are who are silly or who are or who somehow deserve it kind of thing. And of course, if you're from if you're for, if you're not from a privileged background, if you are from a more a more marginalised background, uh, you're going to call bullshit on both of those um, right of those ideas because one way or another they'll they could get you killed. Yeah, but, yeah, and that's that's one of the funny things I I've seen with the Worm and his Kings. Um, with with there was I I've I've seen some chatter like where it was like kind of rejection of. Monique, the main character, because she's homeless. Yeah. And and that's yeah. I'm not sure if that's coming from the idea that, well, that shouldn't happen, which is fine, or the idea which a lot of people have, but they don't say, which is that they feel if somebody's homeless, then they deserve it. Yes. Yeah. Or that would never happen to me. Whereas right, as, yeah, as no. if you're not three paychecks away, like three lost paychecks away exactly. from losing everything. Exactly. And and either you either you do know it or you should know it. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I, I think again this is something about horror, right? Horror reveals 
how thin the crust actually is. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the opening of like, if the back of the book is just like, if you fall through the cracks, no one's there to catch you. Like that is, and like, that's on a personal level and on a universal level. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of also provides an explication of why, again, why people would, one of the big questions, and I think maybe one of the first stories that kind of start, tried to answer that question was uh, David Drake's Than Curse the Darkness, which was kind of like, uh, one of the big questions always left unanswered in, in Lovecraft's original text was, well, what kind of person would actually want to join a cult like that that was all about destroying everything? Why would they? And then it was Drake's, you know, Drake, I mean, Drake's story. It's it's all the people who are di- uh, dispossessed or tormented or destroyed by by colonialism. And then similarly, yes. it's, yeah, if like, like like you said, if you're out and if you're cast, if you are cast out into the outer darkness beyond the beyond that wonderful shining citadel that is civilization, well, the darkness is going to seem a lot nicer than civilization, and civilization is not necessarily going to seem like a thing that's worth preserving if, um, if it doesn't yeah. have a Yeah, and God knows, I mean, it's 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 always very funny with Lovecraft because uh, he he wants to believe that he's speaking from a place of privilege and he is speaking from a place of privilege, but at the same time, he's, he's the guy who was down to like a can, half a can of something a day by the end of it. But but we still deal with that today where people think that they're just, they're just temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Yes. Yeah. I suppose that's what he would call genteel poverty. Wasn't his family had been, had been richer and more but of course the other thing with Lovecraft is he always likes to pretend he's coming from a place of rationality um when in fact certainly in a lot of his certainly a lot of his attitudes are about as non even the ones which are supposedly grounded in you know some he, he would no doubt say you know, his racism was it's, it's just science that these races are inferior but yeah, exactly. the language in which they're expressed is never is never it's never it's never rational it's never sort of cool or cerebral it's always like oh my god the horror the alien horror of italian people you know or, <laughs> or, or you know the, the degenerate dutch right <laughs> right it's it's almost a worship of the idea of reason yeah without actually adhering to it or really caring about it yeah, yeah it's it's a bit like a lot of I've had with quite a few, you know, sort of a lot of the a lot of the guys who were really into the new atheism in the early 2010s, uh, who were usually straight white guys, um, but who were very big on rationality and who, you know, who regarded it as, you know, sort of the height of the height of kind of moral courage to tell religious people they were all stupid or crazy. Um, like that's going to solve anything, uh, but they would all be there was there'd be nobody so convinced of their objectivity and rationality as you know a, a straight white guy banging on banging on about is basically reacting emotionally to something. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the the baseline for me with um, with uh, rational atheism is is always emotion. <laughs> you know, it's always like you know, it's like. On some level, fuck your magical sky, sky god, fairy, you know, bullshit <laughs> because of something that's happened to you earlier in your life. You know, it's like yeah. you just want to destroy other people. <laughs> you know, the thing that's and, keeping other people from, you know, slitting their throats. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. it's it's just this idea, I think, of they're they're like, I am emotionless. I am reasonable. I'm rational. 
now here's the person that every that this that these people on TV told me to be angry at. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I I, I think uh, none of us want to think that we would enjoy being an authoritarian that we would enjoy having authority so that we could you know practice authoritarianness on on other people but the fact is yeah there's always a part of you that would enjoy we that i doubt anyone has not had at least a few moments where they thought if they would just make me absolute dictator for one yes. month I could yeah. sort all the problem, all the world's yeah. problems, all the country's problems, and all the world's problems, yes. and yes, probably would exterminate certain people. But you know, only yeah, only yeah, conservatives and people like that. No, nobody. Yeah, important. of course. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. there's always no. It's always some bunch of people who are nobody important. It's, uh, <laughs> we're all. They just make me witch king pope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think that's the you know the negative side of everybody's um everybody's uh personality that is something that horror you know allows you to delve into to go you know like what what are my worst impulses what yeah, would happen is, if i indulge those it's what always makes me laugh when people say you know people oh god horror writers must be such you know sick disturbed people it's like no <laughs> <laughs> the, psych the healthiest people. You know, where else can you know? You'd be so pissed off at somebody that you 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 somebody could piss you off to the point where you'd seriously like to choke them. You can't do that without going to prison in real life. But sit down at your desk, yeah. write a yeah. write a write a story in which you kill them horribly, and you get to you get to do the crime without doing the time. Basically, you know, I'm I'm not saying that there aren't horror writers who have strange you know, ideas, but I. Oh, yeah. You know, whenever I see somebody, uh, you know, <laughs> whipping out a gun in a <laughs> in a in a corner store, it's usually not a horror writer. True. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean you don't you don't have my favorite kind of of candy? This is America, you know, <laughs> or, or wherever. <laughs> it's like, sir, why, <laughs> sir, yeah, and uh, sir and or ma'am, why? You know, do why? Why are you open carrying in a corner store in the first place? <laughs> what is the point of this action? Um, was, was, was about that, I don't know if you ever saw that meme. It was like a, a Facebook error message. You cannot be in a relationship with your cousin. Cut to some guy with a baseball cap and a shotgun. I thought this was America. That's right. I can be in a relationship with anything. And again, you know, horror. <laughs> horror fantasy, you know, your brain. And that's once again all we've got time for this evening. But if you tune in at the same time again next Thursday, you can hear the final part of our interview with Hayley Piper here on No Darkness But Ours.